the commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because of him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now in the original language, it's all one one long run-on sentence, and it's crafted to make a point. Naaman has quite an impressive resume. He is powerful, he is rich, he is popular, he's a hero, and the run-on sentence is gushing, and then you come to the very end, and the bomb drops. But... Every time I, sorry, I just had a moment. When I was in youth ministry, you get, there, there are a lot of these statements in the Bible where it's blah, 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 but, and we would say, that's a big old but, right? And it really is. He was this, he was this, he, and then there was something else, but that's not appropriate, probably for big church, so we'll just keep going. But I, you know, but that, but, but, all of this, boom, you know, he's, he was a hero, he was this, he was this, he was this. But he was a leper. And the point that is being made is that no matter what kind of designer life we might craft for ourselves, we're still vulnerable. We're not in control. No matter how good things might be going, there will always be frustration. No matter how perfect the snapshot might be, things aren't always as good as they look in the picture. There's always deep sadness and disappointment and sometimes really scary things lurking behind the scenes because... The world is broken. We are broken. And Naaman's leprosy is a great picture. It's a great illustration of this. He had everything. He, was, he had everything. He was, I mean, in many ways, in our popular cultural mythology, he was the captain of the football team married to the head cheerleader. I mean, can you imagine what their Christmas cards would look like? But he was a leper. And the problem for our church and the danger that we're in is that we are people who in many ways are much like Naaman, wealthy, educated, successful, and so forth. And so it would be easy for us, with all of the good things going on in our lives, to forget that we have a problem, that there's a disease that's literally destroying us. And I can tell you where I feel it. I feel it uh, in my need. Uh, I feel my need in relationships in my life that, that I long to be so different than they are, but there's brokenness due to my sin into the sin of others. I feel it in how my body aches this morning after two days of moving boxes and furniture. <laughs> I'm too young for that. But it's there. I'm literally falling apart and will eventually return to dust. I feel it when I see that somebody I love dearly and was very close to 10 years ago got married this weekend and I wasn't even invited. And it's just a, it's just a reminder that, that life is really, you know, it's hard. And I couldn't celebrate for my friends. And who knows all the reasons why stuff like that happens in our lives. The specifics aren't as important, I don't think, or as relevant as the big picture. Life, life is broken. And our relationships are broken, and we're broken on the inside. And so life is full of these moments when you think you're in control. Probably like Naaman did. And then all of a sudden something happens and you realize you're not. And the reality is you never were. It was a lie. And that was the moment. Naaman's leprosy created for him. Naaman the war hero, Naaman the great, was Naaman the leper. We have a problem. We need, we need somebody from the outside to come and save us. And so when that happens, when you have moments like that, or when life makes that turn for you, much like it did for Naaman here in this story, what do you do? 
when a storm comes into your life and strips away the, the illusion of self-sufficiency, what do you do? Well, what does Naaman do? What is, let's look and see what Naaman does. How would, how would Naaman be saved? And the story tells us. Uh, look there in verse 5. He goes to the king. He gets permission to go to Israel. He gets the king to write him a letter of recommendation to the king of Israel, thinking it would hold sway. Naaman empties his bank account and heads out to find Elisha the prophet. Now, what's he doing? He's bringing his connections, his power, his money, and his personal prowess. If you look down in verse 13, we're going to see this in a minute. He thinks he's going to have to do some great thing to get the prophet you know, to, to heal him. He's bringing all of this, the stuff he has in his life, his power, his money, his personal talent and prowess to earn his healing. And this is the thing that, that is such a challenge for Naaman and people like him, people like us, is to think that the solution to the problems we kind of default, the default mode of our life is to think that the solution to the problems we have must come from us. They must come, the solution must come from our resources. So Naaman's plan is to pay for his salvation. And this is how he thinks it works. You pay for it. You earn it. If you remember Jesus' story of the prodigal son and the story, do you remember when the son comes to his senses and begins to make his way back home uh, to his father? What's his plan? Do you remember? Here's what he says. He says, I'm going to say to my father, make me, make me a hired servant. In other words, let me work hard and pay you back because that's the only way he thinks he can get back into the father's good graces is to pay off his debt. And of course, Jesus means the parable to be a lesson about the way we all relate to God, our Heavenly Father. And he's exposing how we are all just like Naaman here who wants, who thinks what he has to do is he has to come up with a way to pay for what God will do for him. George Whitfield put it best when he said, and I quote this often, and it's because it's really powerful for me. But he said, when a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord. As soon as he's awakened and senses his need for God, he says to himself, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do everything I can. And certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, when awakened, remember when that, when that moment comes, Naaman has leprosy, or when the storm comes, or when the, the trouble descends and you... There's this awakening to the fact that you're not as in control of life as you think you are and you really do need help from the outside. He says when he's awakened, the, the sinner, what, what we do, Whitfield says, is you fly to his, the sinner flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself from God. So the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and his performances. What he's trying to do is to ultimately hide himself from God. That's what the prodigal son was doing. When he began to be awakened, right, he's in the pig pen and he realizes this is not going very well. He awakens to his sinful condition. His immediate solution there in Jesus' story is uh, to change his life and to be good. I've been bad, I'm going to be good. And in the hopes that one day all of the good I'm going to do from this time forward will outweigh all of the bad I've done from this time, you know, from here back behind, you know, behind now. And, 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 and so this is, Jesus is revealing something that's true of, Every single one of us, it's the way nearly every single person in the room responds when we come face-to-face with our spiritual need. We want to pay. Naaman expects to have to pay for his healing. But here's the question we have to answer is, what does it assume about the way the God of Israel works? What's Naaman's working theology? You have to pay very careful attention to the text. Look at verse 2. Did you notice the servant girl points him to the prophet who is in Samaria... 
but where does Naaman go? Where does Naaman go? He doesn't go to the prophet in Samaria. Where does he go? He goes to the king of Israel. He goes straight to the king. Why? Because he assumes that the God of Israel works the way his God does. He assumes that the king can influence the prophet to do what he wants. That's why he gets the letter of recommendation from his king. He's, he's making a political move here. He, he is using his political connections because in his culture, this is the way it worked. He expected that the prophet would be employed by the king, would do what the king told him to do. So Naaman's making a power play. He's bringing all of his resources to bear, trying to manipulate the situation to get from the prophet Elisha what he wants. Naaman believes that you can buy your blessing from God. He believes that the most talented, the most connected, the most moral, the most powerful people, that these are the people who get the blessing from the God. He assumes Israel's God is just like every other God in the world, that you can buy his blessing, that you can manipulate and politic your way into getting from him what you need. Naaman would save himself. He would do some great thing that would cause God to take notice of him, but that's all, that's wrong. That's completely wrong. He leaves Syria trusting in his own strength, trusting in his own resources and political connections, and then he runs into Elisha the prophet and his life begins to fall apart because the way we would be saved the way, and the way God saves in truth are irreconcilable. They're on a collision course with one another. And what we learn from this passage is there's a curriculum for learning how salvation works, and every single person in the room who is genuinely in Christ has been through the curriculum. And the curriculum is just this. It's from Hosea 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Come, the prophet says, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he has torn us that he may heal us. And the image there the prophet's using is the resetting of the bone. If you've ever broken a bone, just, just a word of advice, and I'm sure my doctor friends would say this is true. If you, if you ever broke, break a bone, uh, don't wait and, and see if it, if it just is going to miraculously heal itself, right? Because the problem is, is if you break something and you don't get it, go to get it fixed immediately, as it begins to heal, it heals incorrectly. You know this, right? Then you end up going to the doctor. The bone's not in the right place. There's all this pain, and then you're in real trouble because what's the doctor have to do? He has to re-break it. It's the only way to fix it. It's so malformed. It's so out of joint, whatever it is, that when, when you finally show up at the doctor and the doctor begins to go to work trying to fix you, what he first has to do before he can fix you is he has to cause you injury. He has to re-injure you in order to do it right this time. That's what the prophet says. It, it, you, you, have to, you have to be re-broken so that you can be fixed. And so the way the prophet says God works often in our lives is we come to him thinking everything's in the right place, but what we don't realize is everything's out of joint. And so what he has to do in order to get us straight is he has to go about the work of breaking us so that he can be the one to put us back together the way we should have been put back together in the first place. And that's exactly what happens to our friend Naaman here in this passage. From their very first exchange... Elisha the prophet is purposefully humbling this Syrian hero. I mean, look what happens. It's marvelous. Remember, Naaman is a Syrian general. He has come to Israel to be healed. That in itself is humbling because he was responsible for for conquering Israel. I mean, he has led many political campaigns, many military campaigns, that is, that have resulted in victory over Israel. And now here he comes, the conquering king, to the people he has conquered because only there among them can he find what he needs. So that in itself is humbling. Then when he arrives at Elisha's house, verse 10, Elisha refuses to come out to him. <laughs> Which would have been terribly insulting. 
okay? I've come all this way, Elisha, here I am. And Elisha sends his servant out and won't even go out himself and talk to him. It's great. He, uh, he, there's no spectacle, okay, which Naaman apparently expects. He wants flair. Do you see what he says? He says, you know, he didn't come out and wave his magic wand and heal the leper, he says, right? He, he, he expects Elisha to make much of his coming, but Elisha is very understated and even dismissive. Why? Why? And the reason is, is because Elisha's a good pastor. He realizes that Naaman is used to being made much of. That's his problem. And the best way to love somebody who's demanding Tell them no. The best way to love a narcissist is to do what? Ignore them. There's no feat of strength required of him, which he also apparently expects. Verse 13, there's no great thing that he has to do. There's an alternate translation of that verse. I think the NIV actually gets it right here instead of the ESV. And the NIV his, his, um, his servant comes to him and says, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? See, Naaman expects some kind of contest, a quest, some deed to test his strength and prove that he is worthy of, of Elisha doing this for him. Instead, Elisha tells him to go and wash in the Jordan River, which Naaman himself says was not a very impressive river. The rivers of Damascus were far more you know, impressive and this cum- the cumulative effect of this whole scenario, this whole interaction with Elijah, the whole thing's too much of him. And by the time Elisha is done with him, we're told in the passage, Naaman is furious. Now, why is he so angry? He's angry because he's been insulted. I'm trying... He- Sorry, I'm having these moments. I- have you ever- I'm just having these moments as we go along that aren't, that aren't normal. For me. But it's like, God, it's hard to be up in front of people when God is speaking to you while you never mind. I'm sorry, that's really confusing, I know. I just was thinking about how, how often I, I, sometimes people in your life are going to be angry because their pride is wounded, not because you've done something wrong. Right? He's angry because Elisha has insulted him. What he doesn't realize is Elisha's doing it to save him. He's being a friend to him. His pride has been insulted. He's angry for the same reason that the elder brother in Jesus' prodigal son story is angry. Because he's not being given the credit that is due him. Because God, this God that he's met in Israel, is not like the gods of his homeland. He does not evaluate on the basis of performance. I mean, do you remember the elder brother in the story of Jesus, that Jesus told why is he so mad? That, that guy comes home and he's mad too. Why is he so mad? He's mad because the Father's grace put him on the same level with his irresponsible, immoral, younger brother, which meant that all of his hard work was for nothing. And that's Naaman's problem too. Naaman is upset because anybody can wash. It's too easy. He wants something hard to do. So then in the doing of that hard thing, he can prove that he's worthy and then he will get the blessing that he so desperately wants. But if all he has to do is wash... Well, anybody can do that. And he's offended by that. Now, uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in our denomination, on this passage, has this to say. I thought he was really insightful. He says, the greatest deed to receive salvation is to admit that there isn't any deed to do. The hardest thing to admit, excuse me, the hardest thing is to admit that no matter how hard you try, you can't earn it. It's not too easy to accept the free grace of God. It's too hard. That's why people aren't doing it. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's too scary. It's 
too humbling. It's too wonderful for us to let ourselves believe in it. He goes on, this is the great deed. To admit there is no great deed you must do. All you need is need. All you need is nothing, and very few people have that. See, there's only one way you can be saved. You have to feel your need of him, as the song we're going to sing in just a few minutes says. And the way God works to get you there, to get you to where all you, need, all you have is need, all you have is nothing. The way God works to get you there is to take you through the curriculum, to be broken so that you can be restored, to be humbled in order to get rid of your pride because it is your pride and your self-sufficiency that are killing you. Your pride, your pride will send you to hell. Pride destroys relationships. It makes, makes us fools. And so in order to save us, God has to bring us to a place where all we have is need, where all we have is nothing. And that's what Whitfield goes on to say in the quote I quoted a few minutes ago. He says, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but you likewise must be troubled over your best duties and performances. And the people that I meet who have been in the church a long time are usually very ready to repent of their sins, particularly if they've come into some hard time or something troubling, some storm that's fallen on their life. I meet with these people, they're very ready to repent of their sins, but the solution to their sin problem, the solution to whatever it is they're facing that they're wanting to talk to me about is always some kind of righteousness. It's always some kind of, okay, I can get this together, I can figure out a different plan, I can, you know what, I've been bad, I realize I can kind of change and not do that anymore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be different from here on out. And, and the solution seems to always be, see, it's, go, see right underneath that, it's always, I'm, I'm the solution to my problems. My, my works, my performances, my duties. It's exactly what, what Whitfield said, flying to your duties. David Brainerd, who was a missionary at the time of Jonathan Edwards in, in colonial New England. Uh, this is an excerpt from his diary, and it could be one from my own, which is why it, it has been so powerful for me over the years. He says, when I was about 20 years old, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions, and thought I must be very seriously religious. Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserved nothing. Yet, listen to this phrase, yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. I thought that through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps towards heaven. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would certainly be affected by these things. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. That's Naaman. Naaman would heal himself with his duties. And that's the real leprosy that's killing him and killing us. It's what, why Elisha deals with him the way he does. It's what's destroying our relationships. It's what's literally sending us to hell. There's only one way to become troubled over your best duties. And that's to have them fail you, to have other people not be as impressed as they should be or to be unappreciated or forgotten or overlooked, to have your pride insulted. And if God is going to save you, just like he did with Naaman, it's the only curriculum. And so part of what we have to do is we have to recast the storms in our lives. We have to recast our sufferings. They are the curriculum that you have to go through so that you can learn the lesson. And what's the lesson? And this is the last point. What's the lesson? Naaman would pay for his salvation but the lesson he has to learn is that salvation is free. You can't pay for it. Salvation is by grace, not by payment. And what happens in this text, truly, Naaman is converted. This is a conversion story. And conversion happens when a person shifts from thinking that they can earn a blessing from God with their performance and their work and their effort. They stop thinking that. They start learning how to trust and rest in God's free grace. And maybe a great 
illustration is the one that the story that Jonathan told us last week from First um, Kings chapter eighteen and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's such a vivid picture, isn't it? It's what and it's what nearly all of us believe. They are there within this contest with Elijah. They cry out to Baal, their god, to do for them what they've asked them to do to consume the sacrifices they've they've set up. Nothing happens. And so what do they do? Do you remember? They begin to yell because they imagine that he must be asleep. Because no one's answered. And they need to wake him up. And then that doesn't work. And so they resort to, they begin to cut themselves and bleed. Literally, it says the blood gushes out of them. And they get caught up in this ritual of, of all of the, this groaning and moaning and crying out. Trying, you know, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're trying to wake up the gods they serve and show their devotion. They're literally cutting themselves to show this is how much I you know, believe in you. This is how much I'm willing to, to do for you. Won't you see and come to my aid and do something? They believe in salvation by payment. And Tim Keller goes on to say, that all paganism is based upon the idea that it's our job to attract and merit the attention of the God. That's what Naaman's come to do. Keller says, so you come in and you make sacrifices and show with great pageantry your honor of the God. He says, every other religion says, you go and you sacrifice, you cut yourself, you hurt, you throw your body into the flames. You do all of that to show the God your love and honor and attract his attention. But only Christianity in the whole world. Only Christianity claims that God has come, that he sacrificed, that he became poor and gave it all away, that he hurt, that he was cut, that he, as it were, threw his body into the flames and he did it to attract you. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, in Titus 3.5, that he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. He said to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are freely justified, justified freely, freely, freely justified by his grace. There's only one way to be saved, and it's to receive, not achieve. It's only when you get to the point where what you say to the Lord is, nothing in my hands I bring. It's free. But how can it be free? That's the last thing we've got to deal with this morning. So by way of just closing, that great deed that Naaman thought he could do, but was actually too great to do. Remember, he came thinking, I'll do some great deed, and, the, and God will look and be pleased, and he will bless me. That great deed that he thought he could do, but that was actually too great for him to do, somebody else did. We read this past week in our community Bible reading from Acts chapter 5, where Peter's preaching, and he says, God raised Jesus and exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior. And that word leader is a Greek word that means something like champion. It would have made complete sense to the Greco-Roman culture uh, of the first century because their common mythologies were full of divine heroes who descended from heaven to earth to rescue mankind. And when Peter in Acts 5 calls Jesus our champion, he means that Jesus went on the quest, that Jesus passed the test, that Jesus won the contest against evil, that Jesus slayed the dragon. And that's why we don't have to do any of those things and why Naaman didn't have to either. Salvation is free. Because it hinges on the work of a hero that isn't me, or you, or Naaman. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He did the great thing that God's righteousness demanded, And he died the death we should have died. And with his dying breath, you'll remember on the cross, he said, it is finished because it really was. There's nothing left for us to do. And that's why, if you come to him like Naaman did, with your spiritual resume in hand, if you come to him like the prodigal with promises of future obedience, if you come to him with any boast, 
he will turn you away. Jesus would say, you will have your salvation at no cost or not at all. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Now let me apply this in this way. The story goes on. Elisha refuses payment from this great man and he sends him on his way. And and yet there's a servant of Elisha, kind of a prophet in training that's there. His name is Gehazi. And Gehazi catches wind of this, and once Naaman is gone, he sneaks out of the house and chases Naaman down and fabricates a story. He says, you know what? Some people have come by that my master Elisha wasn't expecting, and so you know that offer uh, of, of clothes and money? You know, is that still good? Could we get a little bit of that? And Naaman says, absolutely. I'd love to, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled at what God has done. I'd love to, to pay my fee. Here's, you know, here's a certain amount of money and some clothes and some other things, and Gehazi goes back home. And when he gets there, Elisha's waiting for him. And he says, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, I've, I've been right here. And he says, don't, don't lie. I know where you've been. And because you've done what you've done, because you've gone and you've exacted a, a price from that man instead of doing what I did, which was offered to him what is his freely, because you've done that, may the leprosy of Naaman be upon you and your family. And what's fascinating is Gehazi, Naaman, the leper, is healed. Gehazi, the moralist who, wants to, who, who believes in salvation by payment, is the one who ends up with leprosy. And the, moral, the, moral, the lesson, the moral of the story is, is if you insist on salvation by payment as Gehazi did, it will rot your soul. But the second lesson is, is if, if you insist on getting paid as Gehazi did in your horizontal relationships, you'll be a leper too. If you go out into relationships trying to get paid, you'll end up an outcast, you'll end up with no, nobody around you to care for you. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends his disciples out with these words. He says, You received without payment, therefore give without pay. It's a great marching orders. You received without payment, therefore give without pay. Elisha, in contrast to Gehazi, heals Naaman and refuses payment. He gives without pay. Jesus says this is the way we should all live our lives. We should love others and serve them, not making them pay. And what, and, and what Jesus, we make people pay, let me, we make people pay by coaxing their praise because their admiration of what we're doing is, is the payment, right? So if I do something nice for Ashley because I know she'll brag about me on Facebook, I'm not doing it for Ashley. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it, I'm not doing it for free. I'm doing it to get paid. Does that make sense? We make people pay. By withholding our forgiveness or by just giving them the silent treatment when they hurt us or by retreating emotionally from them. Jesus says, stop making people pay. Stop making the measure of your self-giving what you're getting in return. Don't even think about that because you've got a mission like Elisha in the life of the people you're called to, in your life of your husband or your wife or your kids or the people in your community group or whoever it might be. And the mission is to bring the gospel to them. And if you go around making everybody pay, that's not the gospel. Gospel community is, I give to you without pay. I give to you expecting nothing in return. I give to you irrespective of how you respond to my generosity or my love or my time or my sacrifice, whatever it might be. I give to you without pay because I receive from him without pay. I didn't pay for everything I have. God has given me so much, I didn't pay for any of it. How could I ask you to pay for the things I give to you? And that's what, exactly what Jesus says there in Matthew 10. You received without paying, therefore, give without pay. So if you're a Christian, don't buy in. Don't buy into this whole, don't, don't try to buy your way 
into people's lives. Jesus paid the entire cost. Don't try to buy your way into God's love. Jesus paid it all. You paid nothing. So don't make others pay. Salvation, see, salvation, we don't believe in salvation by payment. We believe in salvation by grace. Salvation is absolutely free. And that has radical, radical trajectories in our life. Because we've received without paying, we give without demanding payment from others. That's a gospel community. Uh, And that ultimately is the kind of person that Naaman becomes. You see it as you go on. We don't have time to keep looking in the passage. But it is the fruit of his conversion, and it would be the fruit of ours as well. And so let's pray and ask God to do just that in us this morning. Can we? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the hero that we so desperately need, that you are the one who has accomplished all the feats of strength that are demanded of us, that the law of God would fall heavy upon us and say, be perfect as the Heavenly Father uh, is perfect, and we would be crushed underneath the weight of that. But you, Lord Jesus, have come, and you, in strength, have not faltered, that you, in fact, lived a life of absolute perfection. You satisfied the law's demands on our behalf. You are the hero who, who went on the quest and won the contest that has won us our salvation. And so we look to you. Uh, as this song that we're going to sing now in just a minute says, we turn away from all of our striving and we look uh, to you alone for salvation as it is offered to us in the gospel. Give us hearts that would believe, that would stop trying to figure out a way to pay for the things we want you to do and would begin to rest and receive. that Not achieve, but receive. So that like Naaman toward the end of our story, we might be full of joy and hope. Not anxiously running around trying to manage people's perception of us, trying to make sure that we're able to do all that we've said we would do. Our Father, that's exhausting, and I'm exhausted of it. And so please come and work in our hearts your grace, even as we close the service today, we pray in Jesus' name. Man, there's an irony that we must confront, and that is that if we live feeling like we must uh, go and do great feats in order for God to love and accept us, that actually will turn you into a coward because you'll be scared to death that you'll never do, uh, you'll never live up, you'll never do enough. Uh, it'll, you'll make you anxious and afraid, but if you, if you come to realize that uh, salvation is not by payment, it's free, that nothing is required of you. And if you would do what that song says, venture on him. And venture, venture on him wholly. Actually what it does is it makes you a person who can now go and do great things. And expect great things from him. And so that's the promise of this benediction. That as you go, you don't go to earn his blessing. Here's his blessing for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Receive it and then go and, and live in obedience to the one who has been faithful to you. Receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.